All right, friends, if you would grab a seat. As you're finding your seats, uh, let me invite you to also pull out a Bible. Uh, We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 836, John chapter 5, and we'll be finishing off that chapter today. In today's reading from the Gospel of John, we hear Jesus declaring his unity with the Father and his divine authority. He speaks of the many ways in which he bears witness to the truth, and he invites his listeners to accept his testimony. But the idea of relying on one's person, one person's word can be difficult for us to accept in a world where skepticism and doubt are so prevalent. We've all heard the saying, seeing is believing, and yet sometimes even our own eyes can deceive us. That's why we as humans have developed this strong need for corroborative testimony, for others to bear witness to what we have seen and what we have heard. Let me share with you a story that illustrates this point. Several years ago, a man named Scott Sanders was wrongly accused of a crime and sentenced to life in prison. Despite his protests of innocence, there was no physical evidence to exonerate him, and he was left with little hope of ever proving his case. That is, until a group of strangers came forward to offer testimony. These were people who had nothing to gain from speaking up, but who felt compelled to do so because they knew the truth. One by one, they told their stories of what they had seen and heard on the night in question, and their collective testimony was enough to convince the the courts of Scott's innocence. This story reminds us that there is power in corroborative testimony, in multiple people coming forward to bear witness to the truth. It also reminds us of the importance of being willing to speak up when we know something to be true even if it means going against the popular narrative. In today's reading, Jesus is asking his listeners to accept his testimony, and he's doing so with the authority of the Father behind him. But he also knows that his message will be most powerful when it is corroborated by others, by the testimony of his followers who have seen and heard what he has done. So, as we reflect on this passage, let us consider our own need for corroborative testimony in our own lives. And let's ask ourselves how we can bear witness to the truth that we have seen and heard. Everything I just read to you was generated by a chatbot on the internet, including the fictitious picture of Scott Sanders. We live in a world where it is increasingly difficult to know what is true. College students are like, where do I get that website? (laughs) Um, We live in a world where it's increasingly difficult to know what to trust and how to go about trusting things, especially in this digital world um, where we're inundated with questions of validity and and questions about authenticity. The idea of the validity of Jesus' claim, who he claimed to be, is at the core of today's text in the Gospel of John. Can we really trust what Jesus said? 
Is there a good reason to believe in the claims that Jesus makes? These questions are the most important questions or amongst the most important questions that we could be asking. What will we do with this man who claims to be God? What will we do with the testimony of his life and the the scriptures and of other people? If he can't be believed, if Jesus cannot be trusted, then we should rightly dismiss him. In fact, we should. We should dismiss him if he can't be trusted. But if he can be believed, then that makes all the difference in the world. Last week in John 5, Jesus claimed that he had authority. And not just the authority of like a a parent or a teacher or a government, but that he bears in himself the very authority of God. And, And you would have heard this, if nothing else, last week, that in that authority there is no middle ground, right? There's no gray area. You either accept his authority fully or you reject it completely. He cannot just be a good teacher. He cannot just be an inspiring example. He has basically said, last week to the Pharisees, he said, you know that Sabbath? On the Sabbath, I can do whatever I want. Do you know why? Because I am Lord of the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath. I am, in other words, he said, God. Now that is a massive claim Is it not? That's a huge claim. It's not a claim that a person should just accept because somebody says it. Because if Jesus is God, he is worthy of so much more than respect. If Jesus is God, if he has the power to heal our brokenness, he has the mercy to redeem us, the glory to show us God, then he cannot just be somebody that we like. Jesus, if that's true is not just worthy of friendship. He is worthy of worship. The question today is how can we know? Now, if you wanted to know that I wrote the rest of this sermon <laughs> after I hoodwinked you at the beginning, you could do all sorts of things, right? You could look at the, my journal where I, I write down a lot of bad thoughts and occasionally a good one about the sermons I'm preparing to preach. You could look at the, the ESV scripture journal that has the, the text where I've drawn lines and made arrows and made notes about what's happening in the text to help me understand that. You could talk to my wife or others that are around the church offices throughout the week through that I've had conversations with this week, all sorts of things. But in other words, what you would want is you would want evidence. Now, Jesus knows that if he just says that he is God, he knows that it's a claim that needs to be supported. Verse 30, John chapter 5, verse 30, start of our passage. Here's what he says. I can do nothing. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. I can do nothing on my own. Okay, he's already said that back in verse 19. He's saying it again. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Look there at verse 31. Okay, Jesus isn't, what Jesus is not saying here is that he lied about his testimony, right? If I bear witness about, him, about myself, what he's doing is deferring to the needs of the people that are hearing him make this claim. 
Okay, throughout history, and in fact in the history of the Bible, you need evidence of multiple witnesses to corroborate truth, to, to make somebody or something valid. Jesus is essentially saying, I know that I can't just show up and claim to be God without backing it up. It doesn't work like that. And so if you're the type of person that like, likes to kind of dig into the details, wants kind of answers to questions, is always kind of looking for, for evidence, okay, you just need to know this. Jesus doesn't condemn you for that. It's a very normal thing to be looking for evidence to support the important things in our lives. Some people tend to think that, that faith is a belief in something when there is no evidence to support it, as if we should just believe the things that are said about God, right? Just, just believe it because they were said, okay? Imagine, though, we, nobody lives that way. Imagine you're standing next to a pond, you're back to a pond, and you hear a splash behind you, okay? You turn around, and you see the ripple effects of something, okay? And I'm standing next to you, and you go, what was that? I heard a splash. I see the ripples, and I'm standing next to you, and I say, well, I threw a rock in the middle of the pond, okay? You did not see that thing. You did not see, I mean, truly, when it comes down to it, I suppose anything could have happened, right? A fish could have jumped, Less likely, a meteor, a tiny meteor could have dropped out of the sky. Who knows, right? You don't know for sure, but do you have good reason to believe in that thing that you have not seen? Of course. Of course you do. That The evidence that we have around important claims in our lives are the things that help us to believe. Jesus himself is saying he knows that it's not enough to just take him at his word. He knows that that's too hard. He knows that's not something people do. And he also knows that evidence bolsters faith. That evidence for, to, to believe in greater ways that something is true builds up our faith, right? If you hadn't seen the ripples, if you hadn't heard the splash, if you didn't have a friend next to you giving testimony, you might, might not believe the same things. But because you have those pieces of evidence, your faith in that thing having happened is even more sure. That's what God wants for us. In other words, he doesn't want blind faith. He wants a confident faith. He doesn't want us just believing for believing's sake. He wants our faith to be rightly grounded in the evidence that we are so wired to desire. And so in light of this desire that Jesus knows the Pharisees have, that he knows that we have, he's going to offer forward essentially three witnesses to who he is, to his testimony, okay? Human, heavenly, and historic. It just worked out, okay? Number one, verse 33, this human witness of John the Baptist. He says, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that, so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, perhaps you remember what's happened with John the Baptist. What Jesus is saying is that you were there. He goes, you saw what happened in the Jordan River. You you basically got to witness this miniature spiritual revival. You saw all those people in the Jordan River repenting of their sins, turning from their wicked ways. You saw God working in the lives of people through John, and you loved what happened. Of course they would love it, right? These, these religious leaders, any leader would love people turning from their sin and repenting of their wicked ways and acting kinder and more justly and more compassionate. It makes people easier to lead, right? Easier to govern. It leads to a 
to a more uh, peaceful and just society. He goes, you loved it. And you basked in the light of John. You were happy to bathe in the light of his work for a little while. So you've seen testimony of people's lives changed because of me. But he says, you've forgotten what John was all about, what his main message was. John the Baptist's whole reason for doing the ministry that he did, in fact, his whole reason for even being born was to point ahead to the one who would come before him, to prepare the way of the Lord. He was calling people to repentance, of course, but not just repentance for repentance sake. The whole point was to point forward to the greater one that would come in Jesus Christ. He said, I baptize with water. He's gonna come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He goes, I'm calling you to repentance, but there's one who is going to come who is going to set you free and reconcile you to the holiness of God by making you holy. Now, Jesus knows that John, John's testimony or the testimony of John's life is not enough for these Pharisees, okay? That's just kind of like, this is like his warm-up act in this, this whole dialogue here, okay? He continues in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. What Jesus is going to do after... Starting with John the Baptist, he says it's not just human testimony, okay? There is a direct testimony, Jesus says, from the Father in heaven. And he offers three ways that the Father's testimony comes, okay? You've seen two of them here. First, the works of Jesus. It's right there in verse 36. The very works that I am doing bear witness. Jesus reasons that if he were just a man, if he were just a guy, then the miracles that they've seen him perform would be impossible. That's like an agreed-upon premise in probably in all people, right? Supernatural things require supernatural work, okay? So miraculous works come from a miraculous power. And Jesus has already said, I can do nothing on my own. Everything I've done is given to me from the Father. Every miraculous work of Christ was given to him. And from here in the Gospel of John, he is going to go on to again and again and again demonstrate through miracles that he has authority. Now you might say, how do miracles and authority go together? Maybe you remember the story of the paralytic. It's in the first three Gospels where the the paralytic man uh, is trying to get to Jesus. The house is so busy, so his friends take him up on the roof and lower him down through a hole. In the house. And so the man is laying there in front of Jesus. What's the first thing that Jesus says to him? He looks at him and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And off in the distance, in that same room, the Pharisees are grumbling, right? Ugh. How dare he? Blasphemer. Who has the, the authority to forgive sins except for God alone? Now Jesus knows the heart, right? And he looks to the Pharisees and he says, What's easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier to say to tell this man to get up and walk? The answer to that question is they're both impossible, by the way. It's a rhetorical question. It's meant to force them to go, well, both of those things are only things that God can do. 
to say either of those things. That's exactly why we're calling you a blasphemer, Jesus, because only God can forgive sins. And they say, and only God could heal this man. And Jesus says, so that you know that I have authority, I say to you, rise, get up your mat, and go home. And the man does. The miraculous works of Jesus are a testimony of the authority that he has. And then on top of that, in verse 37, Jesus says, the Father himself has borne witness about me. Okay, we don't know exactly what Jesus has in mind here. Likely, though, because he's already mentioned John the Baptist, he's talking about that moment at his baptism when the Father's voice literally gave testimony to who Jesus was. He's baptized in the Jordan River. The Spirit descends like a dove, and the voice of the Father from heaven says, you are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus goes, you've heard the Father himself give testimony to who I am. He continues, he'll give the third reason. The Father's testimony for Jesus is right here. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? The Father bears witness to Jesus through Jesus' works, through his own testimony, and then also in verse 39, through the scriptures. Jesus says it's the scriptures that bear witness about me. Now, this feels a little bit strange to us as people who love the Bible. Jesus is going, the Bible is only meant to point to something greater. Okay? And the Pharisees thought that just in the very act of knowing and studying and searching the scriptures, in that act, they had life. Jesus says, You've misunderstood the point of the scriptures. The point of the scriptures are to point us to the hope of the scriptures. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you had this book and this book didn't point to me, then this would be a waste of your time. If if Jesus is not the fulfillment of this book, then it does you no good to study this book. You see that after the resurrection in Luke 24, Jesus is... Uh, Jesus has resurrected, okay, and they, they don't know where he is. The disciples don't know where he is yet. And two of the disciples are walking along the road discussing what's just happened in Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden Jesus is walking next to them. And he goes, what are you guys talking about? There's a paraphrase, the New Aaron translation. What are you talking about? And they go, are you the only guy that doesn't know what happened? Which is really rich by the way, considering who they're talking to, right? Can you imagine being the guy that's quoted saying that to Jesus? Are you the only one that doesn't know what happened? Jesus of Nazareth, he did these incredible works and they killed him. And he said after three days he was gonna rise, we don't know where the body is. And Jesus goes, are you that blind? Are you so blind as to not see and, and what it says is, as they're walking along the road, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The whole Bible is meant to point to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of it. 
Now, remember who Jesus is speaking to here. I know I've said it a bunch, but it's the Pharisees, okay? Religious leaders, okay? If, if all of that is not enough, uh, Jesus is about to kind of hit them with all he's got, okay? Verse 45, here's what he says. Do not think that I accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. Now, when he said that word, Moses, that is like the ultimate ancient Near East mic drop, okay? It's a massive deal that he is invoking the name of Moses to condemn them for their lack of faith. Moses, on whom you have set your hope, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Okay, this is probably the one, even more than the scriptures, even more than the Father himself, this is the one that might have hit the Pharisees the hardest. Moses at this point has, has been elevated essentially to this role of like a secret membership card in the God Club. Okay, that's what Moses is to the Pharisees, okay? The authority that Jesus claimed as one to speak for God seemed to be in direct opposition to Moses because they knew that Moses spoke face-to-face with God. He spoke with God and for God. And so when Jesus says, I now have the authority, he's he's pitting himself in one sense against Moses. Now imagine, just put yourself in the, the shoes of the Pharisees for a second, okay? Imagine that every day, for many years, you had to drive from Fort Collins to Loveland on I-25. Some of you are like, I don't have to imagine that. I do that every day. But imagine that the speed limit was 25 miles per hour. Okay, we're looking at like an hour, hour commute one way here. Okay, 25 miles per hour every day for years. You got an hour, 45 minutes maybe, an hour one way and back. Every day you're driving 25 miles per hour down I-25. Okay, and then realizing that it's safe, it's better, it's more efficient, the speed limit is tripled to 75 miles per hour. Okay, imagine how you might feel. You're driving along, okay, your whole life for many years. You might be a little bit afraid because you're used to driving 25 miles per hour down this road, right? You might be a little bit jealous of all those cars that are like zipping by you because for years I've put in the work. I've been driving 25 miles down there's these newfangled blah, 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 you know, like grumbling and jealous because they, they now get this efficient, you know, 15, 20 minute, uh, I-25 these days is still an hour, but <laughs> this efficient journey in like a third of the time. The religious leaders of the day, they deferred to Moses as their absolute authority. Jesus says, your hope is in Moses. What he's saying there is their hope in Moses was a hope in two things, a lineage, right? We came from the line of Abraham. This is how people get saved. They're born into it. And from the law that Moses gave to people, okay, through obedience, that's how people get saved. Moses gave the law and we just have to obey it. And therefore God will be compelled to save us. And yet in Deuteronomy 18, Moses goes, there's another one coming. There's one coming after me and he is going to be greater than me. He's going to to show you the Father. He would be a mediator between God and man. Moses himself pointed ahead to the coming of Jesus. God's going to come along, in other words, and give a better way. And the, the Pharisees are just piddling along at 25 miles per hour, angry that the speed limit has all of a sudden been increased, that stuff has changed, that God has revealed new things through the person of Jesus. John the Baptist, Moses, the Father himself, Give testimony to Jesus 
They're all proclaiming that his authority is trustworthy. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called Meditation on a Tool Shed because he wrote about all sorts of <laughs> random stuff. And, uh, and you should read it if you like Lewis. It's good. It's short. You can find it on the internet. Okay? It's, I'm just going to read you the first couple paragraphs from it. Okay? This is a helpful picture, I think. Here's what he says. He says, I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. And from where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it, it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. But then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving in the branches of a tree outside and beyond that, 90 odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. Now, Lewis goes on to use this in a totally different way than I'm about to. Very helpful, okay? But I think that's such a helpful picture here. The beam is like a pathway to another world. The testimony of these witnesses is, are like that beam, okay? You're not, you're not meant to look at the testimony. You're meant to look along the testimony of these witnesses to the object of the testimony, Jesus himself. And we can so quickly miss that point. Remember one more time who Jesus is speaking to. Religious leaders, Pharisees. He's talking to people who know the scriptures, to people who pray, to people who give their money, who who do acts of mercy, who live good lives and respectable lives. In other words, he is speaking to religious people. And he says, you're looking at the light, not along the light to me. What he's saying is that all of our religious efforts can cause us to miss the whole point. We can, like the Pharisees, fall in love with the beauty of the beam of light and forget that the beam is pointing us to something better. And so we hear these evidences for Jesus and we go, yeah, that's so great for all those wayward people, all those people out there that don't know Jesus, okay? Something that's needed by all those people who are opposed to God, but the people that need these evidences according to Jesus are the Bible thumpers. It's you and me. We need this. And aren't we so tempted if you're, if you're like me, I'm so tempted to drifting away from faith in the grace of God to faith in myself, to forgetting that Jesus needed to hang on that cross for my sin. Yeah, maybe Jesus saved us, we say, but we so often believe that our religious practices are what keep us saved. And Jesus says those religious practices are, in fact, the very things that can cause you to miss the whole point. We marvel when Jesus, the eternal Son of God, says, I can do nothing on my own. 
And then we turn right back around and try to do everything on our own. And Jesus condemns them for it. Of John, he says, you were willing to rejoice in his light for a little while. Of the Father, he says, his voice, you have never heard his form, you have never seen, you don't have his word abiding in you, for you don't believe in the one whom he has sent. Of Moses, he says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. You have all this testimony, and you don't believe. And his biggest condemnation, he says, what that leads you to is just receiving glory from one another rather than giving glory where it's deserved. How do you know? How do you know if you're starting to drift in this way? It's so natural. As people who love Jesus and are trying to follow him and trying to obey him, it's so natural to start to drift in this way. I want to just offer you a list of symptoms. Okay, these are just symptoms to, to let you know if maybe you're looking at the beam rather than along the beam. You are focused on self-righteousness rather than Christ's righteousness. The stuff you do is the stuff you think that God loves you for. You're frustrated when someone else receives grace of any kind because it feels as if you have earned what you have. You're exhausted because of everything that must be done to keep up with your religious obedience. You see the sin of other people and you think that you're above it. You would never say it out loud, but you think in your heart and in your mind, I would never do that. And so because of that, you have this sense of hypocrisy on the inside. Outside, you look good, you're doing all the right things, you're acting all the right ways, but nobody knows your broken and dark inward thoughts. And accountability for your sin scares you to death. There is a lack of genuine joy in your salvation. Rather, it just feels like obligation, like, like drudgery, like you're bearing a weight. You have very little patience for those who don't know as much as you do about God. And when somebody says something that's wrong, you feel like you have the need to refute them or correct them rather than patiently listening and gently shepherding. And last... You love to think of Jesus as a victorious king and you shudder at the idea that he is also a suffering servant. Now, if these feel like a description of you, you should search your heart. Perhaps you have never understood the grace of the gospel. Perhaps you have just forgotten. Have you fallen in love with the beam rather than its source? Let me just remind you, brothers and sisters, of the grace that we share and the good news that we proclaim. There is one God. He is holy and righteous and just, and he created all things by the word of his power out of an act of sheer grace. And we are not that God. We are separate from that God because we are so broken in and of ourselves. We are so wrong in our own sin. We are removed from him, and there is nothing 
that we can do to fix our greatest problem. Sure, we can cover it up. We can try to fake it. We can try to act like everything's okay, but at the end of the day, what we need is not a little help or a little leg up. We need absolute rescue from death. And God the Father, in his great love for us, sent his son to live a life of perfect righteousness that is just given to anybody who wants it. To die on a cross so that when God looks at you, he goes, every debt that you could have ever owed me for your sin is paid in full. And then you watch his son raised to eternal life so that we can be people who have this forward-looking hope that one day our faith will be sight and our prayer will be praised. Rest in that. Cling to that. Don't ever forget that. And if you embrace that, and I know that so many of you do. I know some of you are here and you're like trying to figure this out. That's great. I hope you've heard that. And I'd love to talk to you. I know you have friends here with you that would love to talk to you. But if you've embraced this good news, then here's the crazy thing that happens. You and I become the witnesses to Jesus right? You enter into this long line of people that testify to the wonderful beauty of the good news that has saved you. We become, in other words, a part of the beam. We get to point people to Jesus along the way. Acts 1.8, after Jesus has risen, after he's revealed himself finally to the disciples, he's about to ascend to the Father. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem And Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you hear that? You will be my witnesses. That's the exact same word that was in John chapter 5. The Father has borne witness to me. John the Baptist has borne witness to me. The scriptures bear witness to me. Moses bears witness to me. Same word. That word in Greek, I learned it this week. Marturia. Does that sound like anything? Marturia. Martyr. Ooh. I liked it a second ago. To witness, to be a witness to Jesus means that we come to Jesus and we die so that we may live. It's, it's to give our lives for the glory of his name. And I'll just end here. Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, there's this list of faithful people who have come before Christ, witnesses to him. All Old Testament heroes who are bearing witness to the coming one. Okay, Person after person after person named for the, the great things they do in faith of God. And at the end of that, the writer of Hebrews is kind of summing up what these lives looks like. Here's what's written. Starting in Hebrews eleven thirty two, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness." became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. We look at that and we go, yes! I love that. 
I'm so excited. Christ is the victorious king and he empowers us to walk in that victory. And friends, that is true. And we should delight in and embrace in that, okay? But unfortunately, the writer of Hebrews is not done. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect, even in suffering, in trial, in hardship, and even in death. We can stand in sure and full confidence in the work of Jesus, our Lord. And church, when you live this way, the world will notice. The world will look at the way that you're living. They will see the joy that they have. They will see the good that you do. They will see the vulnerability that you walk in. They will see the hope that you are grounded in. They will see the way that you suffer. And when you live this way, they will say to you, where do you get that? I want some of that. And then we just say, let me tell you about something I've witnessed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel, the good news that we are saved by grace through faith, through no work of our own, but through only the things that you have done for us. Thank you for that great grace that we share as your people. Thank you that you saw fit to reconcile us, to justify us, to pay our debt, to set us free, to reconcile us to the Father the holiness of God. We praise you for that. Lord, I want to pray for, um, for us that we would be people that look along the beam rather than at the beam, that we would look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the one who endured the cross for the joy set before him. I pray, Lord, you would help us to, to be witnesses to the beauty of your great good news, the gospel that we share. We're grateful for this privilege and the joy it is to reflect in that together this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.